Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of a Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host, Howard Sides. Uh, today I'm going to kind of veer off course for a little bit because uh, it is the season, season of Christmas, and I've got a lesson here uh, I did several years ago, uh, actually back in 2020, and uh, it's the true story of Christmas. Talks about the true story of Christmas. There's so many um, variances of songs that we sing and stories that we're told that uh, some of some of the things are not exactly biblically accurate. And so I did a uh, a study and a Sunday school lesson on the true story of Christmas. So we're going to read that, uh, and it takes place in two chat uh, two sections of the Bible. Uh, basically, this is the story in Luke chapter 2 and then also in Matthew chapter 2. So, uh, we'll read that and then get into the lesson. And uh, I'll see if I can get it in one podcast. If not, we'll do it in two. But I wanted to get it out before uh, uh, Christmas, you know, suddenly came upon us. Because it's going to get busy uh, this time of the year, I'm sure, for most of you anyway. So, uh, so we'll come off of the book of Revelation for a little bit. I think uh, they'll forgive us for that. <laughs> You'll forgive us for that. <laughs> and uh, jump into this, okay? All right, so uh, the true story of Christmas. Uh, let's first of all look at Luke's story. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Luke chapter one, uh, 2. Uh, verses 1 through 21. See, I'm in the wrong chapter. I'm in chapter 1. Oh, it looks different. Okay. All right. Chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem. And see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known to us, known unto us. 
And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Okay, so in Luke's story, we see, first of all, uh, Jehovah's son is born. Jehovah's son is born. Then we see that Judah's shepherds are briefed. And let me see, I'm trying to get through my notes here. I think that's the, yeah, that's the two headings that we have. Okay, so Jehovah's son is born. Now under this title, let's first of all look at this decree by Caesar in verses one through five. The decree by Caesar. And there's two things to note about this decree. First of all, there's the law, which is uh, verses one through three. And then there is the location, verses four through five. So first of all, this law, verses 1 through 3, uh, and it talks about uh, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, all the world should be taxed. Uh, it was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And uh, now the Roman Empire ordered period periodical censuses to be taken every 14 years for two reasons. Uh, one of those reasons was for assessing taxation. And uh, number two, it, it was to find out who was eligible for required military service. Now, the Jews were exempt from military service, so the sole reason for this taxation uh, or, or this census to be taken in this area was simply for taxation purposes. And basically, it's how much money they get out of taxing these people. That's what it is. So that's why they did this census. Uh, now, recovered records indicate that the nearest census decree to Jesus's assumed birth date would have been around 8 BC. Now, our calendar is set where basically year one is supposed to be the year of the birth of Jesus Christ. BC means simply before Christ. Now, secular Historians today like to add the E and it's the before the common era and AD has become, I don't know what it even means there, but AD is Anno Domini, it's Latin, it means in the year of our Lord. So don't get caught up in that, it, it's simply, it, it, that's what we marked our calendar by and that's what we stick by, um, but some people think he was born more towards uh, 3 AD or 3 BC, it, 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 it bounces around in there. There's no exact time, but as far as when this uh, census decree went out, uh, the nearest one would have been at about 8 B.C. Uh, as pertaining to when he would have been uh, birth, uh, born. So this decree would have been made in 8 B.C. and then the news goes out uh, and people have to have time to get to where they would be. So uh, again, there would have to be ample time for each local government to send word out, okay, then the recipients for that local government, you know, they have to get the news, then they have to make plans, and then they have to travel. All right, there were no airplanes and things, so it took time to move people with uh, walking and 
horseback riding or animals like oxen, that sort of thing. Uh, so a certain amount of time would have to be given to allow citizens to be able to make these long trips to their hometowns. Now, some critics doubt whether each citizen was required to return to their ancestral hometowns, but according to an actual government edict from Egypt, this was not exclusively happening in the Roman Empire alone. Uh, according to this edict, it says, and I quote, Gaius Vibius Maximus, prefect of Egypt, orders, seeing that the time has come for the house-to-house -house census, it is necessary to compel all those who for any cause whatsoever are residing outside of their districts to return to their own homes, that they may both carry out the regular order of the census and may also diligently attend to the cultivation of their allotments, end quote. So this was not something just happening in Rome. It was happening throughout the Roman Empire. It was actually happening in Egypt, too. Okay, now this fellow Cyrenius in verse 2 is mentioned. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Uh, now, Cyrenius, who is also known uh, by the name of Quirinius, Q-U-I-R-I-N-I-U-S, was the actual governor of Syria starting in 6 B.C., but held an official post in that region from 10 B.C. until 7 B.C. So he was an official there from 10 to 7 and then became the actual governor in 6 on to, you know, because B.C. it counts down, okay? Okay, so that pertains to the law part in verses 1 through 3. Now, uh, let's look at the location in verses 4 through 5. And this is where Joseph uh, had to leave Galilee and uh, went unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So they had to travel basically from Nazareth, Nazareth, to Bethlehem. Both Joseph and Mary belonged to the lineage of David, so they, in essence, both had to go uh, to their home in Bethlehem. This was a distance of about 80 miles or so. Okay? Now, that covers the decree by Caesar. Let's look now at this delivery by Mary. Delivery by Mary in verses 6 through 7. Um, now, in verse 7, particularly, it says, And she brought forth her firstborn son. The use of the word firstborn here tells us ahead of time that she did, in fact, bore or bear other sons and daughters who are referred to later in Scripture. Many people assume and think, surprisingly to some of us, but maybe not so if you think about it, uh, that Jesus was an only child. He was not an only child. He actually had uh, several brothers and sisters. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 3 said, Is not this the carpenter? Uh, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Uh, so he had at least four brothers. And I've stated there before that it's at least three sisters. And are not both his sisters with us? It does not say that. It says they're not his sisters, meaning that there's possibly and probably more than even two. So they had quite a family, uh, a good-sized family. And it mentions that um, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in what are called swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes comes from the Greek word 
Sparganoo, Sparganoo, however you pronounce it, S-P-A-R-G-A-N-O-O, Sparganoo, <laughs> Sparganoo, I don't know, <laughs> it's a Greek word, but it meant to strap or to wrap with strips. Now, originally, this was an Oriental custom to begin with, and it was copied by other uh, nations probably when they saw it and realized what it was used for and uh, the uh, positive aspects of it. They just copied it and did it too, and so that's where it comes from. <clears throat> All right, now, uh, the swaddling cloth itself, it was a square cloth. Uh, with a long bandage-like strip coming diagonally off from one corner. Uh, the child was first wrapped in the square of cloth, and then the long strip was wound round and round about him. Okay? Uh, in America, we don't do this very much anymore, where we wrap our infants and babies up in real tight banding clothes, but many foreign countries still do this. Uh, I remember when I was stationed at the embassy, one of the one of my good friends there, he was an Air Force uh, staff sergeant. His wife um, had twin boys. And so I went to see him in the hospital when they were born, and uh, they wrapped them up like this. I mean, they were wrapped so tight. And the concept was that it reminded those babies of being in the womb. It actually gave them comfort. It wasn't for a purpose of choking them down or anything like that. Uh, plus, it held their body heat in. Uh, but this swaddling cloth, um, it, it kind of looks like a, um, uh, if you picture a kite with the tail on it, but the kite is not like rectangular in, in or however you want to say that shape it. But if you scrunch it up and make just a perfect square out of it, and then that tail comes off of one corner, that, that's what this swaddling cloth uh, looked like. Okay, and then it mentions a manger, which uh, most people have guessed that pretty right. It, it means a place where animals are fed. So this could be an actual feeding trough or it could be a stable uh, where the feeding trough was. Many people just assume it is this feeding trough alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. But <clears throat> a manger uh, more specifically means the place where animals are fed. So he may not have been in the feeding trough, but just in the stable itself. Uh, now the phrase in the inn. Now considering the amount of visitors, accommodations would have been few at best. Uh, especially noting that everybody had to come back to their hometown. Now it would not have made sense. Now remember we mentioned a minute ago that uh, this census would have went out every 14 years. Now if this was something that happened every year, uh, I could see where there would be a benefit for maybe building several hotels to accommodate all these people. They may have made their money uh, by doing that. But every 14 years, yeah, not so much so. So there would have been a hard uh, time finding uh, a place to stay. Uh, now, there is this building called a con, which is a K-H-A-N. And this was a Middle Eastern building called a con. It was a one or two story rustic building around a square common area. Now on one side of the square outside the wall would be stables for the animals. 
Each person who came to these places had to carry their own bedding and their own food. So this literally was just a roof over your head. But it was in the shape of a square, and, and in the inside was a common area. So it wasn't like a totally enclosed building. It was, it was in the shape of a uh, rectangle, only in the outside circumference of it. And, and the stables would have been outside on one, wall, one edge of one wall. Okay? All right, so that kind of covers that. Now, uh, let's look at the next section here. Judah's shepherds are briefed. Judah's shepherds are briefed. Uh, now, first of all, we're going to note that they watch. Second of all, they wonder. Second of all, they wonder. Third of all, they worship. And then fourth, they witness. Okay, so they watch. They wonder. They worship. And then they witness. Okay. All right, so first of all, they watch. That's verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields, in the field, one field, keeping watch over their flock by night. All right, now, first of all, let's note that this story introduces us to these characters called shepherds. Now, the fact that shepherds were told the news first is a very interesting as well as an odd uh, part of this story. And the reason being is that shepherds were considered the lowest social class of the day and were basically despised by all other classes of people. They were the lowest of the low. Even the poor people didn't like the shepherds. Uh, and part of that was because they could not keep the details of the ceremonial law. In other words, they could not observe all the meticulous hand washings, the rules and the regulations associated because they were critical in keeping the sheep safe. Nobody else would do it, so the shepherds actually played an important role in uh, the daily life of the common Israelite, but they were still shunned for that occupation that they had. Now, it says here that they were abiding in the field. Now, another interesting aspect here is, is where they were. Now, considering the location of the temple was close by, and that the demands for morning and evening sacrifices of unblemished lambs was necessary, it is quite possible that these very shepherds were responsible for supplying the unblemished lambs for these sacrifices. Thus, by telling the very shepherds who were supplying these unblemished lambs for the daily sacrifices that the Lamb of God was born, enabled them to be the first to see the one who would take away the sin of the world. And the fact that they realized how important it was to keep these lambs completely spotless and blemished, unblemished, uh, they would have an insight into who this one would be that was called the Lamb of, of God. And it says in the next phrase, keeping watch over their flock by night. Okay, now, considering the climate here and how the climate in Middle East, in the Middle East, would be very similar to what we have in, in this time of the year also, we know that this event could not have taken place in December because they would not have had their flocks out there during the night, and they certainly would have been out there in the night watching them. Now, the custom was to put the sheep out in pastures uh, from spring to early October, 
and then put them in shelters for the winter months. Okay, so this idea that they were out here watching their flock by night, it had to have happened sometime in uh, the spring to early October. Okay, so automatically that should clock off the question everybody's asking. So, when was Jesus born? All right, well, the Bible gives us a couple of clues as to when it is, and, and it's kind of working out the math here. Uh, so, kind of follow along with me, and uh, we'll, we'll show you what's going on here. Okay, first of all, uh, let's look at the fact, uh, uh, or let's turn back one chapter, Luke chapter 1, and read verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says there, uh, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, if you don't know where this story is going, we're, we're going to get to it anyway, but Zacharias and Elizabeth are the mothers of John the Baptist, or the mothers, the mother and father of John the Baptist. But notice it says a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia. It mentions this course of Abia. Now, these Jewish priests were divided into 24 courses, which ministered throughout the year in the temple. The order of Abia was the eighth course, which served in the temple during the tenth week of the priestly cycle. First Chronicles chapter 24, verses 4 through 5, and then verse 10, talks about this. It says, And there were more chief men found of the sons of Eliezer than of the sons of Ithamar, and thus were they divided. Among the sons of Eliezer there were sixteen chief men of the house of their fathers, and eight among the sons of Ithamar, according to the house of their fathers. Eight and sixteen is where we come up with twenty-four courses or divisions of the priest. Okay, Verse five. Thus were they divided by lot, one sort with another. For the governors of the sanctuary and governors of the house of God were of the sons of Eliezer and of the sons of Ithamar. And then it goes down through and lists them. And in verse 10, it mentions the seventh to Hakaz and the eighth to Abiyah. So Abiyah was eighth in line out of the 24 courses. They had the eighth cycle, the eighth course or the eighth week. Now, the start of the 10th week coincided with the second Sabbath in the month of Sivan which runs approximately from mid-May to mid-June. So, soon after Zacharias returned from his priestly duties, his wife Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. Okay? Now, that's Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 24, and then 26 and 27, and then verse 31. We'll read those. Luke chapter 1, verse 24 and it says, now, and after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, uh, then it jumps to verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. 27. 
to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And then verse 31, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Now, in Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy is when the angel came and told Mary she would give birth to Jesus. So from the timetable of these events, the approximate month of Jesus' birth was to be around the time of Tishri. Tishri is mid to late September. Now the conception of John the Baptist at Sivan, the month Sivan, which is the month of June, basically, six months later, Gabriel appears to Mary and announces the conception of Jesus in the month Kislev, which is around December. So it was December when she actually found out that she was going to be pregnant and have a baby. So nine months later, of course, is the month of Tishri, which ends up being September. All right, so the next question we ask is, all right, then why do we celebrate Christmas in December? Well, there's a reason for that. Uh, the first one is that this is the time of the year when the pagan winter solstice was a huge celebration already in place. Many people celebrated the pagan winter solstice, which basically is the shortest day of the year. And then there is the summer solstice, which is the longest day of the year. Now, when Constantine took over as emperor of Rome and integrated the Christian beliefs into the government system, he mixed together the Christian and pagan holidays to try and appease both crowds until he could force his own agenda. So once Christmas uh, was melded into this pagan winter solstice, uh, it just took over and it never was changed. So... There's that. Okay, so we see where the shepherds watch. <clears throat> now, in the next section, we'll see where they wonder, which is in verses 9 through 14. They wonder. Now, within this fact uh, that they wonder, uh, they wonder about several things. Uh, one is the reassurance by the angel of the Lord. Another is the revelation by the angel of the Lord. And then the third would be the rejoicing by the angels of the Lord. So they had plenty to wonder about. And listen, if you were there, uh, you would probably be in the same boat. I mean, seriously, if you're out there in the middle of the night, just minding your own business. I myself am a third shift worker, so I know how it is to be out there at night, you know, alone, uh, doing your thing. And somebody comes popping up behind you. Uh, yeah, you're liable to jump right out of your skin because it's something you're not expecting. And this goes beyond one person just showing up. So let's look at this. Okay. Uh, the reassurance by the angel of the Lord, verses 9 through 10. Okay. We are not told specifically which angel this was, although we can speculate that since Gabriel's task was that of great announcements, it's possible that he is the one who appears to the shepherds. It, it doesn't mention him by name, we're not saying that this is, in fact, Gabriel. We're just saying that Gabriel's normal tasks involved great announcements, and this would have been the, the greatest of all announcements. So it fits that it could be Gabriel, okay? 
Um, notice the phrase that says that the glory of the Lord shone round about them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. What is this talking about? It is talking about the Shekinah glory, which represented the divine presence of God himself. And the reason that this glory shone around about them was because these angels came from being right there in God's presence. And that glory kind of stuck to them, if you will, and transferred to them. Now, in uh, in Exodus, I believe it is, uh, where Moses spent so much time with the Lord up on the mount, and he come down, it said that he had so much of the Lord's presence around him that it scared the people. That Now, they knew who Moses was. They recognized Moses, but it scared them when he come down and he had this glory around him. Um, the Shekinah glory is connected with uh, we're first introduced to it in the construction of the tabernacle, or basically the use of the tabernacle, if you will, not not at, at actually. Sorry about that. <laughs> I got everything going off on my phone here. Uh, hold on, let me set this thing. Up. Okay, apologies for that. All right, back on course. This should kind of glory. Uh, when the tabernacle was built, and then it had the two sections. The outer section was the holy place. And then the inner sanctum was the Holy of Holies. Now, within the Holy of Holies is where this Ark of the Covenant was kept. Now, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant were these two cherubims with their wings pointed out over each end of this rectangular-shaped lid that fit on the box and pointed towards each other. Between the two tips of the wings of these cherubim, not the two tips, it was probably more than that, but anyway, the tips of the wings, uh, is where the presence of the Lord uh, resided. The Lord actually lived in in that pre in that presence there, and that's why no one was allowed in there. Now the high priest could go in once a year on the Day of Atonement, but what they did was uh, the, there was a heavy veil between these two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies. And now right outside of the this curtain. Uh, basically opposite side of the curtain from the Ark of the Covenant was kept this uh, altar of incense. And on the Day of Atonement, they had to bring these uh, particular incense in to burn in this altar. Now, as it was burning, I, I don't know how exactly they did it, but they would push this altar underneath this curtain so that the smoke from the incense would fill the room up. And the reason for that is so that it would shield this high priest so that he could gain access to the pre very presence of God. The reason he had to gain access to the presence of God was because there was a sacrifice that took place on this day that was basically a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel, as well as the priest himself. And so he had to take that blood in here into the Holy of Holies and pour it over this Ark of the Covenant. And so it was a picture of what Christ would do on the cross when he shed his blood. His blood actually removed our sins. It actually removes, I should say that in present tense, removes our sins. This blood only covered the sins, and it is stated as such in the Bible so that you don't get the two confused. The blood of animals does not uh, forgive your sins. It does not cleanse your sins. It covers your sins. And it is only the blood of Jesus Christ himself 
who does the work. So this is where we get this Shekinah glory from. So when these angels leave the presence of God and come down here and show up in front of these shepherds, they still have that aura of God about them. So yeah, that would have frightened anyone. And it says so in that next phrase, it said they were sore afraid. Now, this was no feminine angel in a white robe with a halo around her blonde head. This was a masculine angel. As a matter of fact, all of the angels mentioned in the Bible are referenced with masculine names, although we are told they actually have no sex. They're neither male or female. In every instance of the appearance of an angel to a person, there is fear and respect displayed. Now, this fear and respect displayed is not basically from the fact that this was an angel appearing to them, but it had to do with this Shekinah glory. It was the aura and the presence of God himself uh, that would have done all of this. Um, and in all of these instances, almost without exception, uh, the angel would have to calm the person down due to an uncontrollable fear. And in the, in the Sunday school lesson, I asked, well, why do you think that is? And it, well, we just said it, it was because of that Shekinah glory. Uh, you cannot be in the presence of holiness that pure and that rich and not be afraid, not be afraid. Because we know our personal condition, that's why. Okay, the next phrase, and it says, I bring you good tidings of great joy to all people. Now, this angel assures the shepherd that he is bringing them extraordinary news that should be told to everyone possible. Now, the fact that he says, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Um, well, let's, let's read it. Verse 10, and the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. This is not saying that the entire world should celebrate with great tidings of great joy. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. It's an open invitation. You have to accept it first. Okay? All right. So now that handles the reassurance by the angel that they wondered about. Now let's look at this revelation by the angel of the Lord, verses 11 through 12. Now, there, there's two revelations he brings about. The first one, in verse 11, is in regard to God's Son. The second one, in verse 12, that he brings about, is in regard to God's sign. Now look at verse 11, in regard to God's Son. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He tells them where? The city of David. Well, they're going to know that's Bethlehem. A Savior is born. Now, these shepherds, obviously, are Jews. They've heard the teachings, I'm sure as children or even as adults, they've heard the teachings uh, of the Old Testament prophets of a coming Messiah. Uh, now, they're told that there is here a Savior. And this angel tells them the name, Christ the Lord. Now, the second part of that, regard to God's sign in verse 12, and this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, these shepherds are given this 
good tidings of great joy. And he said that, that today, born in Bethlehem, a Savior is born, and it is Christ the Lord. Now, when you go finding him, here's, here's how you're going to know you're going to be looking at the actual Christ child. Uh, he's going to be as a baby. They may have been thinking that, hey, a Savior has come. And he, they would have thought, well, if the angel could manifest himself to him, this Savior could have just showed up as a grown man. But the angel clarifies it and tells them, hey, you're going to find a, a baby, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, which means a newborn baby. And not only that, you're going to find him lying in a manger. And, and I'm sure they're thinking of grandeur. And, and this was the concept of the Jews throughout the Gospels. Every time Christ admitted who he was, they would not believe it because they were constantly looking for the Messiah, who as the Messiah, he's not going to set this up until the millennial reign. He's coming back to conquer the world and to rule the world as the one solemn and sole ruler as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who they're looking for. They were not looking for a savior and certainly not a carpenter's son. They were looking for a champion. And so, of course, these shepherds probably had this concept in their mind. So this angel sets them straight <laughs> right away. Okay, so here's the reassurance and then the revelation. Uh, the third point, uh, the rejoicing by the angels of the Lord. The rejoicing. Now this is verse 13 and 14. Now it says, verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. A multitude of the heavenly host. Now, the word multitude in the Greek is the word plethos. Uh, plethos. And the word host is the word stratia. S-T-R-A-T-I-A. -A. Now, both of these are military terms for a group of soldiers which indicates a very large number. Now, many scholars suggest the number 10,000 times 10,000. And I think the only reason they come up with that is because it mentions 10,000 times 10,000 in the book of Revelation. I don't think they really know how many it was. We don't really know. But if it is 10,000 times 10,000, that means the sky was filled with 100 million angels. 100 million angels. Uh Without a doubt, that fills the sky. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> okay. Now, it was a Jewish custom that when a child was born, local musicians would congregate at the house to celebrate. They would play music to celebrate. You know, it's time of celebration. Now, how unique that there were no earthly musicians and singers to celebrate Jesus' birth, but rather a huge party of angels, no, not playing instruments and singing, but rather yelling and shouting. And you say, well, why did you bring that up? Well, I want you to note two very specific words describing what the angels are doing here. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. And what does it say they were doing? Number one, they were praising God. And number two, they were saying they were praising, and they were saying. Now, do you see the word singing in there anywhere? Nowhere, as a matter of fact, nowhere 
in the entire Bible are angels described as singing. And there is a reason for that. And you say, well, why is that? Because we sing all these songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That's not biblical. It's a pretty song, and it has a good message to it, but it's not biblical. And you say, well, why is that? It's because angels are created beings. They are not like humans. Angels, as created beings, do not have souls. Singing is an expression of the soul. Angels do not have the capacity to sing, nor the ability to sing. And, quite frankly, I doubt if they even have the capacity to even play harps, either. I don't know where the thing about harps come from, other than David mentions them in the Psalms. <laughs> but we certainly put that on, too, don't we? Uh, all right, now this next phrase and of, of what they're saying. Uh, and on earth, peace. Now, obviously, this was not the present case, nor would it be for many years to come, because Roman occupation filled the land. They weren't even in charge of their own country or their own homeland. They had a foreign government ruling over them. But the intended message here is that the gospel would bring inner peace. And that peace is represented in the person of Jesus Christ, who is given the title of Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That verse, Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now we know that currently and in that time, the world is at war with God. Sinners are at war against God as well as each other. There is no peace among the wicked. So for them to say, and on earth peace, goodwill toward all men, it was an invitation. It did not mean that, hey, we're bringing peace on the earth. That's in the millennial reign, and that's only for saved people, which we'll cover that in our Revelation podcast when we get to that. So, the, this next phrase, on earth peace, and it says goodwill toward men. It does not say toward all men. What is meant here is that the peace from Jesus Christ would be extended to all men who choose to accept this peace. You've got to accept this peace. This speaks of election by God. Election of God. And I don't have time to get into all that, but that's what it is. Now, these words are of great doctrinal importance. First, the birth of Christ is an event which, above all others, brings glory to God in revealing His holiness and justice in requiring such a sacrifice that could pay for all man's sins. Uh, it reveals his mercy in providing and accepting it. It provide, it shows his, it reveals his wisdom in devising such a plan as this, and it reveals his power in its execution. It's, it's all wrapped up in one ball. His holiness, his justice, his mercy, his wisdom, and his power. He requires such a sacrifice that could pay for all man's sins. So what does he does? 
he presents the body of Jesus Christ, all man and all human. He's not half man and half God. He's all human and all God. And in his human form, when he died on the cross, that blood was holy and pure and was an acceptable sacrifice because it was holy and pure to forgive us our sins and to wash them away, not to cover them, but to cleanse them. And in his mercy, he didn't have to do that. He could have told us, hey, this is the law. You either follow it or you die. And what did Adam and Eve do right from the beginning? They, they failed, but God didn't kill them. He provided a way for them. That showed his mercy. And in his wisdom, he come up with such a plan as this. I mean, could you come up with this plan? I doubt it. I probably wouldn't have. Nobody could have. Only God could have come up with it and executed it. That shows his power in that he executed it. So that's the first great doctrinal importance. The second one is that it brings peace on earth. That is peace to man and with God through the atonement and meditation of Jesus Christ. Peace of conscience as the consequence of knowing we have peace with God. Now, many people who are saved, once they become saved, they realized just how longing they searched for that peace. And sometimes before we're saved, we don't realize we're looking for that peace. We don't even realize it's missing. We know we may have the concept that we know something is missing or, or, or that we're looking for something. You may not even know what it is. But until we're saved, and, and, and when God opens our eyes and, and shows us that and we experience that peace, then we realize what we were missing. Okay? Uh, peace one with another as an expression of what dwells inside of us. And that's how we get along because we're of the same. Now, I want to say something here, and I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Now, this belongs to my pastor, but it, but it, it reminds me of a saying he makes, and it's so perfectly clear and so correct that, that this peace in one another that, that dwells inside of us, he has this expression. He says, and I quote, the Holy Spirit within me cannot nor ever will be mad at the Holy Spirit within you. End quote. Now that's a loaded statement when you think about it. The Holy Spirit inside of me has no choice but to get along with the Holy Spirit inside of you. Why? Because it's the same Holy Spirit. So if you've got bickering going on in your church or two people just can't seem to get along, uh, an alarm bell should be raised. Something's wrong. One of them does not have the Holy Spirit. If they do have the Holy Spirit, then they're just not living right. But the Lord should correct that. But if it goes on for years and years, chances are one of them uh, didn't get the goods. In plain words, what this is saying if there are two in your church, again, who are at war with each other, then something or someone basically is not right with God. Now, third thing uh, of great doctrinal importance. It displays the goodwill, the love of God towards man, as no other of his works ever did or could do. And that's talked about simply uh, in John chapter 3, verse 16. Everybody could probably quote this, uh, even people that don't go to church could probably quote it sometime. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay? All right. So, uh, 
within this section, that covers what they the, the shepherd they watched. Verse 8, they wondered in verses 9 through 14. Now let's look at this uh, fact that they worship. They worship, verses 15 through 16. They worship. Now notice these shepherds, they don't tarry or have to have a discussion or call together a panel uh, to make a decision on what to do. Uh, it says right there at the beginning, and it came to pass the angels were gone away from them. The shepherds said one to another, let us now go. <laughs> uh, there's no hesitation whatsoever. No hesitation. Now the one question I ask, and uh, if you think about it long enough, is, okay, if they leave, what happens to the sheep? That I mean, that's what their job is. They're shepherds. They're out there watching the sheep in the fields. What happens to the sheep? Now, the Bible doesn't say specifically, but what it does say is what they said. Now go. And in the verse, next verse, it says that they came with haste. Uh, now, they took the angel's word that they should go and seek the sign, and therefore God would protect their sheep while they went. Um, they, 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 well, why would the angel tell them to go if the angel didn't make provisions for them to have a way to go? And and they took it for that, and, and they went. Okay, so they worship, verse 15 through 16. All right, uh, the final point about the shepherds here, verses 17 through 21. Uh, they witness. Now, within this witness, uh, they they uh, we see three things. There's, first of all, the confirming. The confirming. Then the second thing we see is the contemplating. The contemplating. And then third, we see the circumcising. All right. First of all, the confirming. Uh, this is verses 17 through 18. Uh, and also verse 20. Yes, 17 through 18 and then verse 20. Now it says when the shepherds leave, it says that they tell everyone what they saw. Just as the angel had told them to in verse 10, where it said, shall be to all people, right? And what does it say? And when they had seen it, they made known abroad. They made known abroad. That means they told everybody. And they didn't just tell their family. They didn't just tell their friends. They told everybody they came in contact with. Now, this is a key verse, uh, which comes into play later on. But notice it says there, and when they had they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. They explained it clearly. They told the world, at, at, as far as they could reach, exactly what was going on. All right, now notice the contemplating in verse 19. It says here, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. So Mary keeps all these events in her heart and she thinks about them. Now, as a Jew, she had rehearsed and knew the prophecies concerning the very baby she was holding in her arms, her very son. Now, it is worth asking the question if she actually realized that this little boy was born to die for the sins of the world is whether this occurred to her or not, or whether she realized that that's what was going to take place. It doesn't say. It just said she just thought about all this stuff that went on and thought about them and, and kept it in her heart. She didn't say anything. Now, the circumcising, verse 21. 
on the eighth day the baby is circumcised and named Jesus according to Jewish law and what the angel said even before he was conceived. Back in Luke chapter 1 verse 31, it says there, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. Now, this is Luke's version of the Christmas story. Notice there's no mention of wise men here or this thing called a Christmas star. Where, where are they? Well, the Bible does actually talk about them. If you'll flip back to Matthew, he does talk about them in Matthew chapter 2. So we'll go back a couple of books. Matthew chapter 2. And here, uh, we're not going to read as many verses. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Now, this is Matthew's story. <clears throat> All right. Let me get my stuff situated here. All right, Matthew. Uh, well, you know what? I'll tell you what. It's been 52 minutes. I just happened to notice that. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll tell you what. We'll continue this on the next podcast because you know, we're not going to be able to get through it all. I have more notes on this section than I do the, <laughs> the first section, I think. Yeah, actually do. Okay, so uh, we'll just stop there. We covered Luke's story. Um, next time, on the next podcast, we'll cover Matthew's story, and we'll talk about these wise men. We'll talk about the Christmas star and how relevant they are in the uh, what we call the Christmas story, the true Christmas story. Okay? All right. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this, and um, uh, I hope to get the next podcast on here shortly. I think I'm going to run out of time today, uh, unfortunately. So it might take me a couple of days or a little while to get it on here, but I'll get it on. I promise you I'll do my very best to get it on, especially before Christmas. I mean, why, I'm not going to keep you hanging that long. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, once again, I ask you to uh, pray for me, pray for my family, uh, pray for the other listeners of this podcast. You, you never know who's listening. Someone just pops in and sees the title and they pull it up, interested in it, and it may witness to their heart. It may be somebody that needs to know this story. Uh, maybe somebody who's had a question about it and they get an answer, pray for them. Pray that the Lord will open their eyes and, and, and show them uh, their need of salvation or show them the answer that they need to a question or uh, give them comfort in something that's bothering them. Um, and pray for your local pastor and certainly pray for our country. Uh, we certainly need that. Okay. Okay, so thank you once again for joining me. I uh, hope you have a, a great day, a blessed day, and join me on the next podcast.